0: Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum, I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, we see and hear about the damage human beings do to the Earth on a daily basis. The news is relentless. It may seem as if there is no alternative to our destructive path. Glimmers of hope for a sustainable future seem few and far between. Here, Robin Wall Kimmerer offers a kind of meditation on our predicament and ways in which we might reconsider our place in the world. Kimmerer is a botanist, a member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation, and the author of Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teaching of Plants. Kimmerer says, the question of our time is, how do we give back to the earth? Her answer starts with consideration of and gratitude for all living beings, plants, animals, and the earth itself. She speaks of, quote, the personhood of all beings, the rights of nature, and the urgency of sustainability. Kimmerer seems to see and hear a different vision for life on Earth, one marked by a visceral appreciation for the gift of life on a fragile planet, a commitment to reciprocity and to understanding the language of other beings. Robin Wall Kimmerer lives in Syracuse, New York. She is a SUNY Distinguished Teaching Professor of Environmental Biology, and the founder and director of the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment. Seattle Arts and Lectures presented this talk on April 21st. Seattle University professor Christina Ann Roberts, director of SU's Indigenous Peoples Institute, served as moderator. Seattle Arts and Lectures' Ruth Dickey introduced the program.
1: To open our evening, I'm delighted that we have a student from our Writers in the Schools program. This year, as our schools have met virtually, WITS writers have supported students at over 20 schools around our region to write their own poems and stories and give voice to their experiences of this historic time. Tonight, we are honored to have Anna Johnson from BF Day Elementary, who worked with WITS writer Samar Hassan. Welcome, Anna.
2: Until I saw the sea, until I saw the sea, I did not know how much the sea sparkled and how many animals round. Until I saw the sea, I did not know what it felt like to be close up under the watery bed. But then I felt it, the feeling I wanted to know, that the sea is majestic and nobody really knows.
1: Thanks so much, Anna. In one of the essays in Braiding Sweetgrass, Robin Wall Kimmerer writes about remembering the rituals with which her parents began days saying, quote, ceremonies, large and small, have the power to focus attention to a way of living awake in the world, end quote. And in this sense of ceremony as awakening, reading this poetic book is a sort of ceremony in that it invites us to awaken to the world of plants as healers and teachers, to the reciprocal webs that bind and feed us, to the joys that await us if only we will pause to look and to listen. Kimmerer brings each facet of the ways she understands the world to this illuminating book. As a mother, a scientist, a poet, an indigenous woman, a neighbor, a gardener, an artist, a professor, a steward. She invites and teaches us all to look, to look again, to look more deeply, to not be fooled by any single way of understanding how spring arrives, how plants communicate, why asters and goldenrod grow side by side. This is a book that made me love the world more, made me ache to thrust my fingers into dirt that reminded me a strawberry can be a holy thing. In addition to Braiding Sweetgrass, Robin Wall Kimmerer is the author of Gathering Moss, which was awarded the John Burroughs Medal for outstanding nature writing. Her work has appeared in Orion, Whole Terrain, and numerous scientific journals, and she is the founder and director of the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment. Of Sweetgrass itself, Kimmerer writes, quote, Breathe it in and you start to remember things you didn't know you'd forgotten, End quote. This is also an apt description for reading her beautiful works, which remind us of what we too often forget, our interconnectedness and the sacredness of plants and earth. Please join me in welcoming the brilliant creator of these gifts of beauty and healing for us all, Robin Wall Kimmerer.
2: Miigwech. Thank you for those beautiful words. And I'd like to begin with a Panoanami protocol greeting and say "Bonjour, nikan, Shabedaske gish kowen nadesh nakash. Bodwey war mi kwen da. dam. Mi kwalch kinigeko gamijang. I don't speak much of my language, and it is an endangered species. But our teachers ask us to breathe life into it every chance that we get. So I've shared with you a greeting and an and introduction to say that I'm a Potawatomi woman and how grateful I am to be here with you. I also I want to move my slides here. They're not, there we go. All right. Um, I also want, in our traditional way, to begin with gratitude, which we say is our first responsibility. And remember that we are showered every day with the gifts of of the earth. We have food to eat and that sweet spring air to breathe, the preciousness of water, the companionship of clouds and, and trees. So much gratitude for each other as as people, for the privilege of our, our shared work, and for all the more than human beings with whom we share the earth. I also want to tell you that I am speaking to you tonight from the um, Haudenosaunee territories. I live in upstate New York on an old farm just over the hill from here, from the Onondaga Nation territory, and to remember the debt of history, of land, and certainly of philosophy of our relationships to the living world. And I'm so grateful for them. When I think about where I live, I also describe myself as a citizen of Maple Nation. It didn't. It wasn't so long ago that it looked like that right here where the maple trees are are giving us their beautiful gifts of of the early springtime. And when I think about being a citizen of Maple Nation, the maples are far more numerous than people where where I live. And they are our leading citizens. You know, they they make us oxygen. They they build our soil. They feed us. They cool us. They warm us. um, Everything. And you know, despite the fact that they are our leading citizens, only I can claim the rights of citizenship. And these good people here, the maple people, cannot. And that question will color our thinking together this evening. I also could not possibly begin introducing myself without sweet grass, wingashk. In, in our language, this beautiful aromatic grass, who is for me, a companion, a teacher, um, the plant that really provides the, the central metaphor for, for braiding sweet grass. We braid sweet grass because in our creation stories, we understand sweet grass to be the hair of, of Mother Earth. And so we braid it in order to show our, our care for her well-being and and for her beauty. For me, these strands in, in the braid represent traditional knowledge of indigenous peoples, my own Anishinaabe peoples, um, also the scientific knowledge of plants, and to remember that both of those are simply human ways of understanding the world. The third strand is the plant knowledge themselves, those plants as, as our teachers. And you know, although we are showered with all of these gifts from the earth, We find ourselves harnessed to an economy and to institutions that are relentlessly asking us what more can we take from the earth. And tonight I want to talk about what is our response to the gifts of the earth, because I think the question that we need is not what more can we take, but what can we give back to the earth? What does the earth ask of us? And that question is of immeasurable importance in this moment when we find ourselves on the cusp of climate chaos as we enter what has been described as the age of the sixth extinction. It is partly a question of science. It is also a question of spirit. And the answer to how we address what does the Earth ask of us, depends very much on our worldview and what we think the earth is. What does land mean? What does earth ask of us? It depends. What if looking at the world through the conventional Western scientific framework, what does land mean? So often land is understood as as capital, isn't it? Um, Because land is natural resources. Natural resources, what a concept that land has no value until we transform it into things that we can use. Land as property. That's how it becomes capital, right? Because we claim rights, property rights, to a particular piece of of terrain. Um, Interesting concept. And land as the source of ecosystem services, by which I mean those things that sustain us, like making oxygen and purifying rainwater and and, and building soil. And... (coughs) If this is what land means, we will interact with land and answer the question, what does Earth ask of us if it's our property, is a very different answer than if we use a different lens to see the world. We are, most of us, trained to see with as if it was a monocular, as if we didn't have binocular vision. Um, We are trained and conditioned to think about the Western worldview as the only one. What would happen if we became fluent with the worldview of the original peoples of Turtle Island and enabled ourselves to see with both eyes what does our relationship with the world look like And to answer the question, what does the earth ask of us? We've just looked through the Western lens. Let's now look through the indigenous lens at what does land mean? Land is almost inseparable from indigenous identity. So closely entwined are our lives. And in a sense related to land as ecosystem services, we understand land as the ones who care for us, and sustain us, and indeed give us everything that we need. Land as our home, but land as the home of our more-than-human relatives as well, of which we are only one species. Land as our connection to our ancestors, land as the place that our ancestral paths cleared the way so that we could be here. And it's also a connection to when we become ancestors because we are clearing the way for our descendants. It unfolds on the land. We think about land as our library. Land as a source of of knowledge. Land is our teacher. Also, land as as healer. Land is the pharmacy, um, both spiritual and uh, physical. Land as inspirited, land as home, land not as the place to which we claim rights, but the place where we, for whom we possess moral responsibility, where we enact our moral responsibility for all of life because land is sacred. This is through the other lens, the through the indigenous worldview How might we answer the question, what does the earth ask of us if this is who earth is? And when we look around us at all of the gifts that the land gives to us, there's no question that plants in particular, speaking as a botanist, um, provide abundantly for us, right? And scientists and economists use a certain language for these gifts of plants as producers, as natural resources for their production value right um we think about land as natural resources and plants as natural resources but words matter you know if we conceive of our homes as made up of natural resources what if we instead thought about them as gifts as gifts of the land, as gifts of the beings themselves, like those maple trees who are giving us the gift of of, of sap and shade and firewood and water and air. Um, to me those are gifts, not but not natural resources. And you know it it makes such a difference in our relationship. I was once giving a talk at a Department of Natural Resources at a university. Maybe you have one. They were busy trying to decide on a new name for their department, and I challenged them. I said, why don't you say that you work for the Department of Earthly Gifts, not the Department of Natural Resources? And this beautiful, sweet smile went across everybody's faces. Who doesn't want to work in the Department of Earthly Gifts? And we can. We can make that choice in how we think about the world, how we frame this question. Gifts, one of the oldest, the oldest formulations of sustainability here on Turtle Island is about gifts about thinking about the gifts of Mother Earth, such as berries, and you know, in my language, the word for gift and the word for berries share the the same root, Um, come to us with the metaphor of one bowl and one spoon, that we are all fed from this one earthly bowl full of gifts from Mother Earth, and it's a finite bowl, And, and our job as human people is to keep it full, Also notice, in this powerful metaphor, that there's one spoon. One spoon for everyone who partakes of the gifts of Mother Earth. Not just for human people, there's a spoon for everyone, and the spoon is the same size for all of us. It reminds us of these questions of sustainability, because sustainability is about keeping that bowl full isn't it um, and this term sustainability is to me a really interesting one it reminds me of a, a story that was told me by my friend um, Carol Crow who talks about sustainability uh, in these ways of these you know continuing to provide and ensure the attainment of of human needs, and she said she was explaining this to her tribal elders, and they told her that they wanted her to take their message of what sustainability was, let's see if I can bring it up here, yep, Um, that this definition of sustainability, they said, seems to me like they're just trying to find a way to keep on taking. When your feet hit the ground in the morning, we should be thinking about what it is that we have to give. We have just looked at the term sustainability through two lenses, haven't we? One of which is about perpetual taking. The other one is about giving. And this question of what can we give is so fundamental to the indigenous worldview, this question of of reciprocity, that it is part of our creation stories. Now, you've invited here tonight a scientist, as as well as a a writer, and I'm not going to share with you any data tonight as a scientist. I like data too. but I want to share with you a bit of a story that connects to this notion of what can we give because it is so fundamental. This is a fragment of the creation story which is shared both by Haudenosaunee people as well as Anishinaabe people. Just a fragment of that story, if I may. In the beginning, there was the sky world, where people lived much as they do on earth, alongside this great tree of life, a tree on whose branches grew seeds and fruits and medicine, all the gifts of the plants, on a single tree. In one day, a great wind found the tree and a hole opened where its roots had been, and a beautiful young woman who we call, in our language, Kukwe, the, the sky woman, um, she ventured over to the edge to look down um, in the hole where the roots had pulled up, and she lost her footing. When she reached out to the tree beside her to steady herself, a branch broke off in her hand, and she fell. She fell like a maple seed pirouetting on an autumn breeze in this column of light streamed from a hole in the sky world, marking her path where only darkness had been before. But in that emptiness there were many, gazing up at this sudden shaft of light. And they saw there that small object, a mere dust mote in the beam. And as it grew closer, they could see that it was a woman with her arms outstretched and her black hair billowing behind her. The geese all nodded at one another and rose from the water in a wave of goose music. And she felt the beat of their wings as they flew beneath her and broke her fall. Far from the only home that she had ever known, she caught her breath at the warm embrace of feathers. And so it began From the beginning of time, we are told that the very first encounter between humans and the other beings of Earth was marked by care, by responsibility, by an exchange of gifts on the strong wings of geese. And the world at that time was covered entirely by water. The geese couldn't hold her, and so they called a council of all the beings to decide what to do. The turtle floated in the watery gathering, and he offered to let her rest upon his back. And the others understood that she needed land, and the deep divers among them had heard of mud at the bottom of the water. They agreed to go get her some. One by one, the animals offered their help, the otter, the loon, the beaver, the sturgeon. But in the depth, the darkness, and the pressures were too great even for those strongest of swimmers who came up gasping for air until only the little muskrat was left, the weakest diver of all. And he volunteered to go while all the others looked on doubtfully. His small legs flailed as he worked his way downward. He was gone for a very long time. They waited and they waited fearing the worst for their relative. A stream of bubbles rose from the water and the small limp body of the muskrat followed. The others noticed that his paw was tightly clenched and when they opened it, there it was, the small handful of mud. Turtle said, here, spread this mud on my back and I will hold it. Sky Woman did, as the turtle asked, and then began to sing her gratitude and to dance. As her feet caressed the earth, the land grew and grew from the dab of mud on turtle's back. From the branch in her hand, she seeded the earth with green, and so the earth was made. Not by one alone, but from the alchemy of two essential elements, gratitude and reciprocity, and together they form what we know today as Turtle Island. In the beginning of the world, the other species were our life raft, and now, in the spirit of reciprocity, we must be theirs. The earth was new then when it welcomed the first human. It's old now, and some suspect that we have worn out our welcome. The stories of reciprocity grow dim in our memories. How can we translate from stories at the world's beginning to this hour so much closer to the end? Can we understand this story not as some artifact of the past, but as instructions, instructions for the future? In return for the gift of this world on turtle's back, what will we give in return? This is a way of asking, what does the earth ask of us? One of the ways that we answer that, as I said at the outset of my talk, we feel that our first responsibility is always for gratitude. And gratitude as it's conceived sometimes in mainstream society might seem like weak tea, given the desperate challenges that, that that lie before us. But gratitude is actually powerful medicine. It is so much more than a simple, polite thank you. Because giving thanks implies recognition of the world as gift, because it asks us to recognize the giver. Because when I eat that apple, my gratitude must be directed toward its parent, toward that apple tree whose offspring is now in my mouth, whose life has become my own. And gratitude is founded on the deep knowing that our very existence relies on the gifts of other beings. And, you know, this has an evolutionary advantage as well. Uh, This human emotion has adaptive value because it creates very practical outcomes for so-called sustainability, if we think about that in terms of what can we give. The practice of gratitude in a very real way engenders self-restraint of taking only that which you need. When you feel grateful and in relationship to those who are giving you these gifts you have this sense of satisfaction and and contentment of a sense of abundance in a way which is an antidote to the it seems like endless mess- messages that we're always getting um that say we have to have more we're not enough we have to consume more in order to be happy gratitude and the contentment that it engenders, is a radical act in a consumption-driven society. It's been shown, in fact, that people who practice radical gratitude consume less than people who don't. And when we think of what is it that's driving climate catastrophe? Consumption. What is driving us to the age of the sixth extinction? Consumption. And gratitude puts the brakes upon that. Indigenous story traditions are full of what I would think of as cautionary tales about what happens when we forget gratitude. When people forget to honour the world as gift, the consequences are always material as well as spiritual. The spring dries up, the corn doesn't grow, the animals don't return if we are not grateful and, and respectful. And it strikes me that the Western storytelling tradition is strangely silent on on this matter. And so we find ourselves in an era where we are rightly afraid of the atmosphere that, that we have created. I think that the next step in our cultural evolution, if we are to persist here as a species on this beautiful gift of a planet, is to expand our protocols for, to protocols for gratitude to the living Earth. It is most powerful because it engenders reciprocity. It, is, it asks us, when we are thankful for a gift, to give our own gift back. It asks us to live in such a way that the Earth might be grateful for us. How do we enter into reciprocity with the living world? How do we follow the teachings of Sky Woman who brought in her hand that branch of the tree of life and seeded the world with green? How might we follow that? This is the question of our time. How do we give back to the living Earth? Reciprocity, or returning the gift, is not just good manners, it's how the biophysical world works. Balance in ecological systems arises from these negative feedback loops, from cycles of of giving and taking. And we have to understand that we, like every other successful organism, are bound by the rules that govern ecosystem function. No one repealed the laws of thermodynamics on on our behalf. Unlimited growth on a finite planet is is simply not possible. We must always give our gift back. What are our gifts? I just put together a word collage of some of the ways that we think about what we human people have to give back to the earth, certainly our our gratitude, certainly our respect, which we'll talk about, land care, policy, regenerative agriculture, regenerative economies. We give good science, we give our art, we do the healing work of restoration, which is justice for the land. We raise good kids, We raise a garden and we raise a ruckus on behalf of the earth. One of the ways that we can reciprocate the gifts of the earth is to pay attention, deep attention. Isn't it interesting that we call that paying attention because we are using this gift of the of the, our our focused concentration and devotion of energy to notice who is around us. In a world that gives us maple syrup and spotted salamanders and sandhill cranes, shouldn't we at least be paying attention? And paying attention is an ongoing gift of, of reciprocity. I think of it as a gift that keeps on on giving because attention generates wonder, which generates more attention and more joy. Paying attention to the more-than-human world brings us into a state of amazement. But paying attention also leads us to the acknowledgement of pain. Open and attentive, we see and feel equally the beauty and the wounds the old growth and the clear cut the mountain and the mine paying attention to suffering sharpens our ability to be responsible and this too is a gift because when we fall in love with the living world we can't be bystanders to its destruction attention becomes intention which coalesces itself in To action. How do we pay attention? One of the ways is simply to know the names of the beings who are around us. It's said that our ancestors knew hundreds and hundreds of of plants as little as two generations ago. Of course they did, they were living on the land fed by the land, healed by the land, all of those concepts of what land means that we began with. Um, It's a sign of respect to know someone's name, isn't it? Um, If you don't know your neighbor's name, how will you look out for them? How will they look out for you? You don't have relationship without names. Names are a way we build respect and build relationship. And so, knowing the names of the plants and animals around us is critical. And you know, what do we know the names of? Educational ecologists, ecologists of education, I guess I should say, um, tell us that children today can recognize a hundred different corporate logos. And you can too, I see, you're doing it right now, right? There they all are. Um, Our attention has been hijacked by an economy that asks us to always have more, to think that these are our providers. The same children that can recognize 100 corporate logos can recognize fewer than 10 plants. And when you look at that list of what the 10 plants is, one of them's Christmas tree, so I would count that as, as only nine. Given this reality, is it a surprise that we have accepted a political system that grants legal personhood to corporations and no status at all for the citizens of Maple Nation, for maple trees, for salamanders, for Douglas firs? Learning the names of plants and animals is a powerful act of support on their behalf when we learn their names and their gifts we want to reciprocate what else does the earth ask of us you know the the Sky Woman story is a story of respect for sure. It's grounded in this fundamental understanding of the respect that we do, uh, that is, do our neighbors, um, both by knowing their names and uh, knowing their gift. Respect is grounded in knowing that we are not alone. A way that we can show respect is not only in the way that we uh, live, but the way that we speak. I want to diverge here just a little bit to think about um, the language and and the ways in which we speak. When we think about personhood for salamanders or, or, or for trees, we are we have all collectively in this country been in a sense the victims of linguistic imperialism, which as we know is a is a tool of, of colonization, isn't it? Um, it's imposing another vocabulary. You thought the land was identity and healer and provider and sacred. Nope. Land is natural resources. Nope, land is property rights. We're, this notion of, of, link, of changing language as a tool of colonization is for me nowhere more insidious and pernicious than this little word right here, this word it. When we call to mind again our relatives, for whom we are grateful for their gifts in the English language which is composed primarily of nouns so appropriate for speakers of a language of people who are so obsessed with things with objects um, in the living in the if we speak English when we look at that robin or that bear or the strawberries the only way we have to speak of them is as it right We would say, look at it, go pick it, but would we ever say of one another, it? Would I ever say to you, it is reading, it is eating dinner, your grandma's in the kitchen, and I say it is cooking? It would be deeply disrespectful, right? I stole your grandmother's personhood, I objectified her, and yet... That's exactly how we speak of our beloved Grandmother Earth in English. We call her it. This linguistic imperialism enables exploitation of the living world. Because when we objectify another person, we have excluded them from our circle of moral responsibility, haven't we? Um, We have made them into a thing As I was beginning to learn my Potawatomi language, I was so both frustrated and delighted to learn the grammar of animacy. In this beautiful photograph of goldenrod and asters and monarchs, um, who are the people there? In the Western way of thinking, there are no people there, but In speaking Potawatomi, they are all people. The goldenrod, the asters, the butterflies, the pines, all of them. And in our language, it's impossible to say it to any of them. We speak of them with the same grammar, of animacy and respect that we use for our grandmothers, for our brothers and our sisters. We speak of them with the same grammar that we use for family. Because they are family, because the world is alive and made up of persons, each bearing their own gifts, their own responsibilities, just like us. Excuse me. And so, I've made frustrated with this itting of the world, which to me grants permission to, for exploitative economies, for economies of taking rather than economies of, of reciprocity. How can we heal ourselves from itting the world in this objectification, commodification that turns gifts, into natural resources. Language evolves, and so I've been doing uh, an experiment in thinking about, could we imagine new pronouns that would allow us to escape, in English, the objectification of the living world? As I thought, well, what could we possibly say instead, I worked with my wonderful language teacher, To say, you know, what is the word just for a being, a person, person of the earth? And we worked together, and he said in our language, it's a beautiful word, Bamadisi Aki, which means a being of of the earth. I had no illusions that Bamadisi Aki was going to slide easily into English, much as we need its beauty and its relationality. But the last part of that word is Aki, our word for earth. What about the last sound of that, key? Might we speak of the living world instead of it as ki? We can say he, we can say she, we can say ki. When we mean a person of, of the earth, a living animate being, we can still use it for bulldozers and paper clips and but we can speak of the trees, and the birds, and the river as key, as, as, as a living being. We're going to need a, a plural, of course, aren't we, um, if we're going to really transform our, our language. And in English, we already have just the right word. We'll simply add an N. And so we speak of earth beings in the plural as kin, as our, as our relatives, as indeed they are. You know, I could not stand grammar when I was studying it in, way back in, in, in high school, and so I laugh now to think about the ways in which grammar, in pronouns, could um, transform our relationship with the living world. I think of key and kin as pronouns of the revolution. And a worldview in which other species are persons, and we speak of them as persons, we, we relate to them as persons with their own gifts and responsibilities, how different the world would be if we extended that um, respect to, to other beings. Um, if we can tolerate a government that gives personhood to corporations, why not to a river? And you are looking here at the Whanganui River, the sacred river in the Maori homelands in Ataroa. Um, And as you probably know, it was um, decades in the making, but the Whanganui River has now under Maori leadership been acknowledged with the personhood, uh, legal personhood of, of a citizen of, of Aotearoa. This notion of the personhood of all beings, which is so foundational to the indigenous worldview, finds its expression also in in the Constitution of Ecuador and and Bolivia, which enshrines the rights of nature in the Constitution. We find it in the UN Declaration on the Rights of Mother Earth, which is today, uh, before the United Nations, awaiting ratification this ancient concept of the grammar of animacy of the beingness of all of of the personhood of, of all beings also finds its expression in the rights of nature movement. A whole new system of jurisprudence which is emerging from this ancient paradigm of the animacy and the personhood of the living world. It challenges those frameworks that we began this talk with of land as property, or land as a relative, land as as, as gift, it challenges this idea that, that earth is our property, that it belongs to us. All that the rights of nature suggests is that nature has a right to exist to persist, to maintain, and to regenerate itself in its cycles. It is a huge paradigm shift from thinking about property law to natural law, from economies of endless, impossible expansion, to economies of sufficiency, based in gratitude and and reciprocity, from thinking only of human well-being to the well-being of all from exploitation of the Earth to following the model of Sky Woman reciprocity with the Earth. We've seen this enacted by tribal nations all over Turtle Island and indeed in international tribunals. What does the Earth ask of us? Respect. Gratitude. Reciprocity. That we imagine ourselves living in such a way that the earth can be grateful for us. This is a form of earth justice, in return for all of the gifts that we are given, that we might return our own. And I'll close with the words of a, um, for me, an honored teacher, the late uh, Audrey Shenandoah clan mother at Onondaga Nation who said our job as people is to seek justice, not just for ourselves, but justice for all creation. Miigwech. My words are through. Thank you for listening. And I'm so eager to now engage in conversation with Christina Robertson. I've been looking forward to this so much.
3: Oh my goodness, what an honor. This has just been an incredible opportunity. And let me begin with what you've already shared with us, which is from a place of gratitude. I have found your work to be life-giving during a very difficult time with the pandemic as well as other things that are going on. And I have to also acknowledge not only the beautiful gift of the time of year that we're coming together, spring and acknowledging, um, Uh, uh, I would love to hear your thoughts, not that we necessarily have time today, but Earth Day is coming up right around the corner. Um, But also, I wanted to make sure and and, and speak a little to some of the other things that you shared before we go ahead and move on to a conversation, discussion from the discussion questions from the audience, but I want to honor by um, Hilbert Takshiblu, uh, an incredible, local, respected language teacher, elder, um, no longer with us, but the legacy of her wisdom and her incredible work. Um, and it's ongoing with the Lushootseed Research Institute. And one of the phrases that I wish I could express through the shoot seed is the earth is our first teacher. And I just wanted to make some connection between a local elder who has taught me and so many others so much, um, but the gift of language and and to acknowledge that. And the other thing I wanted to make sure and mention is to acknowledge the time that you're joining us. I recognize for those of us who are here on the West Coast, it might be around dinner time, but I just want to acknowledge, thank you for being with us at this late hour for you. And I I hope that our time together is as nourishing and relaxing so that you can have the gift of some good rest after this. Oh, me good Thank you. Yes, yes. So two things before, and then I'll, I'll ask um, questions from the audience um, and those who are joining us. I want to make sure and honor the, the teacher that you shared with us and the words of seeking justice, not just for ourselves. And yesterday, I know for me and for many others, was a very significant day in this nation. And thinking about, the verdict from the trial, um, as well as experiencing the death of, of young and promising people at the hands of you know violent police encounters. It, it's it's heavy on many folks, and I wanted to make sure and just honor and recognize that this is something that is churning in, in our shared cultural space in a way that I, I would feel um, not considerate of all of my relations to make sure and mention the significance of this time. And that brings us to some questions that have actually emerged um, in our gathering. And there's a couple of dimensions to it. So I'm I'm bringing a couple of questions together. But the questions are of the nature of anti-racism, racial healing, and how much your words have brought peace and love and joy to so many of us, and there's curiosity about your thoughts about healing some of those divisions between our human relatives. I know we'll have time to talk about our plant relatives as well and, and all of the, you know, beings in creation, but to hear your wisdom about, you know, what are your thoughts about how we can heal some of those incredible um, divisions that have been sown for, for generations.
2: Thank you so much for creating space to talk about this you know i'm i'm suddenly thinking about the same tools that we just invoked attention gratitude respect reciprocity never objectifying the other but seeing one another as kin these are the healing tools that we have for healing our relationships yes with the land and with each other and they're so deeply tied to one another that we recognize these gifts that we all have that that can create justice for us especially this notion of of personhood and, and kinship um in this time that we are living in which i think is a time of transformation if there's anything that these experiences are teaching us is calling for a longing for kinship for real relationship and 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 i think that's where healing begins is this kin, this responsibility this compassion for one another that we are not there's no such thing as as the other um, that, that all flourishing is mutual. And, um, that is for our, 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 our human neighbors, um, as well as our, our non-human neighbors.
3: Thank you so much I, I agree wholeheartedly um, thinking about the ways in which and and I'm so, so I, I should have probably mentioned this before but uh, as an English professor <laughs> thinking about grammar and, and so many of the things that you brought up stirred so much in my soul because teaching the next generations how to unlearn, if I may be so bold as to say, some of the things that have been made so normal in in everyday practices. And quite a few of the questions that are emerging right now are thinking about next generations, thinking about also those of us who inhabit urban spaces. And, you know, when we think about how we offer respect and and, and share knowledge and wisdom, what are some of the ways that we might be able to share that with the next generations who might not have the opportunity to have access to nature in the same ways? And there are, folks and community members who would love to hear your thoughts about how can we invite the next generations to be able to have that love and respect and desire for that knowledge.
2: You know, I'm so glad that you used the word unlearn. Um, you know, when we think about the way that that the little ones in our in our lives, I'm thinking about my my toddler grandchildren who have don't have to unlearn yet because they view the world as full of wonder and persons. How do kids talk about nature? They don't say it, they know, they know, and then we teach them not to. We actively teach them to other um, in the same way that racism is taught, that othering is taught. Um, We we have to be guided by the children um, who know the truth of relatedness. How do we unlearn? How do we cement that uh, intuitive knowing about kinship? By being in the presence of the teacher. I thank you so much for bringing us the words of of the elder of the land as as our teacher. Absolutely. and, and that's where we learn. Um, that's where we fall in love with the world. Um, and it is that we, not only that we come to love the world, but that we feel the love of the world. That's another thing that we, we have to unlearn this notion that, that, you know, the, that, that the land, um, is, is absolutely neutral and again, objective, that the land loves us as much as we love the land and what liberation comes from acknowledging that relationship there's a reason we call her mother earth um, and when you really come into that relationship um, extractive economies simply become impossible um if, if that's the way your psyche is formed how do you form that by being on the land and do you have to be on the land you know in the bush um, in in the mountains in the in the meadow you sure do not because our relatives are everywhere our our relatives are in parks on our windowsills but in our sidewalk cracks there's there's nature in the city there's nature in us um, right every breath that you take whether you're you know in at the top of Mount Rainier or whether you're in the city every breath was made for you by plants um, you know um, I I think that, that that false dichotomy of where nature is, is 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 destructive. It's what matters is relationship with with the land, um, no matter which elements of the of the land you're, you're you're engaging with, and that is so important because it gets to the second piece of your question: what, how do you enact reciprocity in an urban environment? Um, well, if you think there's no nature there, um, there's no calling for for reciprocity for one. But how do we enact reciprocity in the in the city? We use a different currency. You know, we might not be tending the plants, but we have the currency of and the gift of living in a vibrant. Um, community where the where communication and sharing of knowledge is so easy. We raise our voices. Um, that's reciprocity. We become activists. That's reciprocity. We be very careful with what we consume um, and what we waste and don't waste. Um, all of that is ways of of enacting reciprocity with with the natural world. And um, we, we need to dissolve those boundaries. Because for sustainability, more and more of us are living in, in urban centers, right? And there's, there's a lot to be said for the, the um, uh, carbon footprint um, uh, value of, of that. Um, so, yeah, um, creating a healing relationship and a loving relationship with, with land happens wherever you and land are.
3: Robin, thank you so much for for your words. I often find myself struggling to find and identify the stories of hope and the stories that invite exactly what you've invited us to think about tonight, just waking up every day with gratitude, um, recognizing again, you know, the gift we we've um, here in the Pacific Northwest, we've been gifted with a, a beautiful last week of abundant sunshine, and it's been infectious for my soul to go outside and watch all of the beautiful plants, life that is emerging, and you know, again, recognizing even the medicine and the gift of the dandelion, and it's not a weed. It's not. Oh, I'm thinking about pollinators and just again, so many relationships we have, and then of course, I'm always mindful of the gift of here, which is uh, beautiful gift. Um, and yet so many people learn, as you've said, to not see that as a relative, because it, it does sting if you're <laughs> unaware of it, if it's if its abilities and, and gifts. But at the same time, you also offered us the opportunity to think about how our language and stories and experiences can shape the next generations and how they're thinking about our connections with one another. And it's so powerful to recognize that we are deeply interconnected, and anything that hurts any one of us, hurts all of us. Um, Mm -hmm. The last thing I will share briefly, and then turn to another series of questions from our community members, is I, I appreciate having an opportunity in teaching, writing, and thinking critically about the structure of the English language, how we objectify, and the example that I like to give are snakes or spiders you know, beautiful creatures who tend to invoke just deep responses and what are the stories that people have heard over the course of their lifetime that reinforce those ideas and the same can be said of of our human relatives and the ways that peoples can be othered and uh, again so much more I wish um, and and hopefully future conversation, um, you know, we can can share. But there's a a couple of questions that are emerging around naming um, and I found this to be a beautiful way because thinking about next generations and um, kids and their experience of the natural world, a question emerged about the names of our, our plant relatives and the Latin terms being intimidating uh, and wondering if a, a playful approach to thinking about how we name the, our, our, the gifts of our plant relatives, is it possible to have new names to to signify that relationship instead of maybe necessarily, you know, the Latin terms, which can be incredible. I agree, it can be intimidating. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts about that? A playful approach to thinking about how we honor that relationship. Yes, um,
2: as, you know, as a, as a botanist, I get a little bit torn about this, <laughs> especially when I'm teaching ethnobotany and I, I do make my students in that class learn scientific names. Mm-hmm. For verification purposes, because there are two plants called hemlock, one of which is a nourishing tea, and one of which one of which will be the last tea that you drink. So, so I I, I have them um, think about the power of, of of Latin names, but they are very intimidating, and. Um, I happen to love them as somebody who loves language, but I also love our our native names for the plants. And one of the things that I have noticed in, in teaching botany for all this time is that so often, speaking of unlearning people, students always say, well, what is it? What is it? Um, Not who is it, (laughs) but what is it? And once they have the name, it's like I can see a curtain go over their minds, like, Oh, I have all I need, I know a label, I know a label for this thing. So in a playful way, and in a way that has been playful and effective in the way that play is, um, is I won't tell them, I won't tell them the name. I said, well, have a taste, have a feel. Who is living with this? Who are its relatives? Um, Get to know this one. Uh, And, oh, by the way, after we've done that, I could tell you the scientific name, but I want you to make up a name for this one. Um, And then they'll never forget that name because they've spent time, they've paid attention um, and have been taught by that, by that plant. And I find it really fun um, and really effective. And after they do that, I still make them learn scientific names. (laughs) So it's a it's a two-odd seeing thing. Um and for their purposes as a scientific botanist, they have to. But but the real learning comes from making relationships.
3: Oh my gosh, that is so beautiful. I agree. I know that um part of what I find myself personally challenged, you know, as a Contemporary individual um, indigenous woman, you know, descended from also you know settler folks, but at the same time to acknowledge that 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 gift that of interconnectedness and making relationships matter more so than the outcome. So for me, I have been sharing with friends and loved ones that I'm obsessed at this point with the how. And you share with us so much in Braiding Sweetgrass and in this talk, the how. And I, I definitely want to mark and, and make sure and share um, this as I move into the future, you know, with uh, future students and community members. I'm so grateful for the questions that are emerging from the audience and those who have been able to join us this evening. And I, I, can, I cannot do justice. I just want to let the community members know I'm doing the best that I can because there's such incredible questions. Um, but a couple that I think are personal, if I may, and then maybe we'll, pivot in the little bit of time that we have remaining to think about you know some of the heavier questions i know that are weighing on people's hearts and i I would um i would feel a heaviness myself if i didn't get a chance to attend to them but Folks are curious about who has inspired, inspired you in, in terms of writing and what motivates you and, and especially, you know, in the midst of climate, you know, the sixth age of mass extinction and, and so much that can become so heavy that we might feel powerlessness. And like I said, you've offered us tools, but what inspires you to do this beautiful work?
2: I don't know a way to answer that other than honestly and say the plants. Um, the plants are, I find them to be so courageous and, and inspiring and adaptable. You know, one of the, the places that um, that I find that to be most profound in terms of what really inspires me is plants of hard environments, Um, plants on mine waste, plants on broken pavement, plants on places that people have discarded, wounded, and then discarded and don't pay attention to anymore. Well, what do the plants do about that? They push up through pavement. They build soil. They attract butterflies. They keep on doing what they're doing. They keep on giving their gifts despite everything because they have a responsibility to, to the living world. You can't look at that. Up, well, I can't look at that without saying, I need to do the same. I need to do the same. Um, and so it, it is it is watching the creativity of, of of the living world that that um, gives me energy and hope.
3: Thank you. Yes, I, I frequently find myself seeking that, and um, especially with my commute and you know living in an in an urban environment. But the gift of seeing the the resilience of what some would refer to as weeds <sighs> emerging through through the cracks. And um, I wanted to share with you my my family in for a few generations lived in an area butte montana known for one of the largest open pit mines and the only reason i share it with you is because there's a story i'm not going to share now because i know people want to hear from you but about the death of the migrating snow geese and how they landed in that toxic water but Mm -hmm. they left behind a gift of a heavy metal consuming yeast that is reproducing in this toxic water. And it's moments like that, that, you know, as you said, what gives you inspiration? It gives me such inspiration to know that even with the most toxic of things that humans have been able to co-create and, and um, allow to flourish in some parts of the and that there's still our relatives who are fighting for us to make sure that we have these gifts for our future generations, including the non human relatives. So, thank you for inspiring me to remember something that is um, significant in my heart and keeps me going on difficult days.
2: Oh my goodness, that is a beautiful story. Be, you know, I'm thinking immediately, of course, of reciprocity and the fact that. Thinking about Sky Woman and it was the geese. Um, oh, and you're giving me chills. That's a it's a beautiful story.
3: Thank um, you. Thank you. Mm. It gives me chills too when I think about it. It's yeah. what it's one of the the stories that has most deeply connected me to all of creation, and I'm so very grateful for the opportunity to remember that with you. Oh my goodness. Oh, so many good questions. I want to make sure, like I said, to Um, honor in the the time that we have some of the ways that we can think about um, some of the, the questions that might be a little bit heavier, but I think are essential as we're thinking about how we're sharing space together. And there's a question about mental health and thinking about connections to nature and to one another and thinking about, again, you know, folks who don't necessarily have opportunities within urban spaces to maybe have that experience. And do you see a connection between mental wellness and the health of our communities and connections with non-human scales of living? Oh,
2: absolutely, absolutely. I think that this is among the many wounds of environmental justice. Um, the access to the healing nature of land um, for for mental well-being, for spiritual well-being, for physical health. Um, we know that the science is unequivocal, that nature heals, right? Um, it heals our bodies, it heals our minds, um, and... Uh, i'm so grateful for all of that that work in both um, physical medicine as as well as 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 mental health that, that that really shows us that we need nature in our lives and and among the many elements that we need to, bring into our work in justice making and environmental justice is greening of neighborhoods. If creating places of, of solace and refuge where you can have relationships with the living world, where your blood pressure can go down, where your stress hormones can go down because you're breathing in tree-breathed air, um, that it's, it's, it's essential to human well-being. Um, and so I'm really grateful for the the questioner of of, of bringing that 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 up. Um, yeah, it's essential.
3: Yes, uh, I feel that as well. Whenever I'm have an opportunity to be outside of again, you know, what feels like a human scale experience, and we are um, we have such gifts in the northwest of, of our mountains and our connection to. Water and thinking about just you know are finite, finite and precious. And and maybe I, I want to take that back if that's okay, Robin. I'm um, not to call them finite because I feel like that feeds into the scarcity model in some ways. But rather, you know, the gifts of of water, the gifts of um, all of our relatives here who are often not thought about because it's about human transportation. It's about you know funneling of goods and. Um, forgive me for my quite little, quick little. But Washington State has the most regressive tax structure in the nation because we're fueled by sales tax. So in some ways, you know, I want to say when you were talking about economies and 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 really, what are some where are some of the areas where we can do some work? Yeah. I, my heart wants to do some work there because it doesn't feel like that is something that will allow us to be able to be in relationship with the incredible beings that call this land home. But at the same time, we're in a space where, again, there's such division and and the, the scarcity mentality. But all of that to be said, that there are questions that are emerging here around how to teach students the, you know, thinking about Fukushima and some other folks are mentioning nuclear weapons and how do we, invite the next generation to hold all of that, the the environmental injustice, as well as the possibility. And I know this is a, a thread, and I've already asked somewhat of a similar question, but I still think people are wondering, like, how is it that we make sure to educate with the full complexity of what we've inherited and not lose sight of what you've offered us, which is respect and knowing and those beautiful gifts of our interconnectedness. Yeah. I think I want to
2: go to thinking again about the power of attention and to say that when we pay attention we have to pay attention to those wounds. I think uh, paraphrasing Aldo Leopold, right? To be a to be an educated biologist is to know that you live in a world of wounds. Um, yes, we do. Yes, we do. We we can't look away from it. Like it's like, well, you're yeah, you live in Washington. You know about beauty screens, right? That little line of trees between you and the clear cut. Um, you know, we can't do that. We have to look at the consequences of the choices that we that we make and we have to feel the pain of them um, we are so averse aren't we to feeling what we feel um and and ecological pain ecological grief of of all of the litany that that you, the questioners are, are speaking of um yeah we have to feel it we have to grieve for them because Remember that, you know, the depth of our grief is also the measure of our love. Um, and I feel like there's two sides of the, of the same coin. And it is, it's, it's love for the living world that, that helps us transform that grief, um, into those powerful protective love, like mother love, you know, um, I'm, I'm, I am going to protect. When I think about what what is it that we really need to be saying to ourselves in in this time of, of narrowing of possibilities through climate change, through contamination, through injustices of every sort, it feels to me like we have to ask ourselves that important question of not what am I afraid of, but what do I love? What do I love too much to lose? And that brings you to both love and grief at the possibility of losing it. And then you ask yourself, what am I going to do to protect it? The only way that what I love is going to come through this narrowing time that we are experiencing is if each of us picks it up and carries it. And, and if we do that, we come to a different place on the other side.
3: Yes. Thank you. So much that my my heart is is full already tonight and and to acknowledge the, the gift of what it means to share in imagining otherwise than what, you know, has been made to feel as if it's inescapable, and it's one of the things that I think my, my dear friends and colleagues, I hope, would know about me, that um, I, I do not shy away from challenges, especially when it comes to spaces and institutions and, you know, places where there is this absence of dreaming. And hoping, and being connected with one another, and 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 stopping in the busy schedule to appreciate, you know, the, the the beauty of the geese as they're migrating, or the gift of the the birds as they're returning from you know their winter time away. And when I'm I'm thinking about our community members and and the the questions that are emerging and what they're. Um, reflecting is, I think, the hope, and I just want to make sure and acknowledge that, that that there's such a hopefulness um, woven throughout the question, and an eagerness that I I, I feel from our our community members who are wanting so much to breathe into our our future lives, that which you've invited us to think about tonight, and, and the who's that are in our lives. I think I have time for one more um, uh, rather, I think, significant question, but also recognizing the beauty of braiding sweetgrass and all that has occurred since the time that you wrote it. Um, There's been much, uh, of course, politically, as well as just environmentally and thinking about climate change and so much that has occurred. Have there been additional things you've been thinking about since you wrote Braiding Sweetgrass, additional takeaways other than what you've shared with us tonight that you want us to hold in our hearts and in our minds Mm -hmm. as we venture into the future collectively.
2: Yeah. It feels as if um, Braiding Sweetgrass was written in a a far more innocent time. Um, I sometimes think of it as we could smell smoke but we didn't know our house was on fire or our house wasn't on fire at that at that moment so the sense of urgency and the weight of the of the times particularly of the recent political times is is incredibly heavy and i can really feel the heaviness of that, and I guess what I want to say is that the responses that have come from readers have given me so much courage, and I won't, and and hope, I guess is probably the right word. No, the word isn't hope. The word is faith. The word is faith Um, in the ways that people are remembering who it is that we were meant to be as people, um, and and that is so heartening because people are writing and saying, "I I don't want to think that way anymore. I'm going to view the world as gift, and here's what I'm doing about it." You know, I despair of being able to ever. You know, I, I I'm I'm not going to. Um, uh, divest everyone from fossil fuels i'm not going to dismantle monsanto um but i can change my mind i can change my mind and so can you and you and you and you and that's how really how change happens is when we say no i am not going to view the world as natural resources the world is a gift and i am going to act accordingly. No, I will not participate in economies of scarcity. I will make economies of abundance. Um, And those are things that we can do individually. And what I have learned in the response to Braiding Sweetgrass is that there are a lot of us out there who are making these changes once we find each other and know that there's a, a community. It's so powerful You know, I used to really think about, oh, well, you're just preaching to the choir. But that notion that, oh, well, preach to the choir, because then the choir is going to sing louder and get bigger. And pretty soon you're singing loud enough to drown out the bulldozers. Um, That's what I see happening. Um, And um, even in the midst of, of, of the darkness that is all around us, that is also true.
3: Oh my goodness, Robin! I am so grateful for the time, and I know that the hour is late where you are. I am so very grateful. I, I, there are tears in my eyes, and my heart is just overflowing. And, and I imagine and trust the same is for our community. This is these are the stories we needed to hear. These are the messages that we needed to hear. And I'm so grateful to share this existence with you, and and honored by this time. And I know you. I know that our. I want to offer gratitude to also all of the. Folks who worked very hard to, to make this event happen for us tonight. And it's just been lovely to be with you this evening. And I wish you wonderful spring energies and look forward to future connections without having carbon footprints. And so much love to you, Robin. Thank you for a beautiful evening. Mm, and
2: to you as well. Miigwech, good night.
0: Seattle Arts and Lectures presented this talk with Robin Wall Kimmerer on April 21st. You'll find the full event and other great Seattle area talks on our website, kuworg speakers. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon.